One Golden Moment Podcast, season number one, episode number 26, Justice De Los Santos, as always. Joining me today, we're going we're gonna to be switching it up a little bit. Roy and Serena, we gave them a little off day, a little DMP coach's decision. And joining me today from the, Ever, the Evergreen State, a pair of reporters from the Daily, the University of Washington's finest student-run newspaper, Kyle Geller and Chris Ankiko. How y'all fellas doing this fine Saturday evening? I'm doing all right. How's it going? It actually started raining a little bit. It kind of threw me off. The weather is still, it's very ambiguous. It's sunny one day, it's raining the next. I know I, know I can't be complaining about rain up in y'all because y'all got rain up in Seattle. Well, it's been nice, though. It's like, say, yeah, it's very ironic because it's very sunny right now, and it's been sunny the last few days. We're going to need some of that sunshine to come on down because like, the way the weather's been out here is it'll be sunny, beautiful, pristine for like five days out of a week, and then it just starts raining out of nowhere. And then it'll just revert right back to it. So we're, we're waiting for that to stabilize a little bit. Yeah, we got 80s coming up next week. It's, it's pretty nice. Ooh, y'all got, the, y'all got the, the summer weather already. Already, yeah, man. Oh, yeah, for sure. Just accelerating every year. I do know that y'all get out of school in June, so I know that's going to be a little bit of a – it's going to be tempting to want to stay inside the classroom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so sure. seeing, as, seeing as y'all cover Washington and I covered Cal this past season – I think we got to start off by addressing the elephant in the room, so to say, and that's the upset. So uh, just to contextualize a little bit, you know, number uh, February 28th, 2019, number 25, Washington travels down to Berkeley to face Cal. And these teams couldn't have been more polar opposites of one another. The Huskies were 22 and five. Cal was five and 22 and had lost a program record 16 games. And for reference, the previous program record was 10. And it had gotten to a point where I was pondering the question. I think I'd actually released an article right before this game. uh, Can Cal men's basketball go winless in conference play? And me and Rory and Serena, the two people that do the podcast with, we were just constantly looking at that number on Kempom, chance of a winless season or in conference. And my rationale was if Cal's going to win a game – this conference play it's going to be against Washington State but the Bears and the Huskies both had other plans hours after Washington clinches that Pac-12 title Cal upsets them 76-73 the weird thing is despite it being one of the crazier upsets in the Pac-12 no one rushed the court I guess that's just that was the state of Cal basketball and the question that I got to ask y'all is because you know me and Rory and Serena we kind of documented our feelings on this but I'm I'm curious as to what what were y'all feeling after that game? Like, was there like a sense of shock? Because that's certainly how I was feeling. Well, it was certainly a strange um, game. It's weird. It's like echoing. Um, but it's certainly a strange game because we started offensively. We were hitting everything, um, and that's something that uh, Washington normally doesn't see. Um, normally, on the defensive side, we're on we're firing on on all cylinders. This is so weird. I'm really sorry about this. Um, but uh, sort of on the flip side, the defense was not did not come to play, um, and then we just stopped hitting everything in the second half, and that sort of kind of turned the game around. It was sort of a back and forth affair, uh, sort of in the second half. Um, can't think. Yeah, the UW definitely the defense that has been strong all year definitely let them down in that game more than any other game. I feel like. Yeah, and the, one of the things I noticed was, in that game in particular, the insertion of, of Connor Vanover. 
and you know seven foot three and his game is uh, it revolves around shooting so that was actually one of the things where in that first game when Cal and Washington played each other I'm thinking you know why isn't Viking playing them because you know the, the idea of beating the zone is you know get into the middle and absolutely yeah and just go from there and I remember one play um, when Cal had played up in Washington. I think they got it to Grand Antisevich. You know, he's 6'8", pretty, like, size guy, sizable guy. Goes up for the mid-range jumper, and Matisse Thibault right there, gets the block. And then I remember a play during uh, the Cal-Washington game up in Berkeley where, you know, Connor gets that ball on the right elbow, goes up for the shot, Matisse tried to contest, and, you know, any other player in this conference, that's probably a block. And he just shoots mm-hmm. it right over him. But... I would say this is this is sort of how I was feeling after it. It kind of felt like it, it felt surreal in a way because, you know, for the past two and a half months or whatever it had been, you know, I was just seeing loss after loss after loss. Some of them, you know, some of them were relatively close. Some of them were, you know, the Oregon State game in particular, they were somewhat close. But then to for, for Cal to come on the floor and, you know, sort of go blow for blow, and then down the stretch of being able to complete and you know it was I, I can't really describe it as other than it felt surreal and I'm curious as to did y'all feel that type of way as well yeah that's how we felt up here at least how I felt up here UW was on a hot streak winning for the past like two months nearly they dropped down in uh, Arizona State but other than that they were on quite the winning streak and then out of nowhere seemingly Cal to beat the brakes off of them and dominated despite the close score. And I'm curious, was there like, just considering that Washington was, they were like the, considered the saving grace of the Pac-12 because the Pac-12, yeah. that was one of the worst, one of the worst seasons that conference had ever endured, if not the worst at, in terms of its status as a Power 5 conference. So I'm, I'm curious, was there, what was the backlash like and what was sort of that vibe like up in, in Washington after that loss? Yeah, we there was talk that there was only whoever won the conference was going to be the only team that got in. Show you, show was stressing a bit after that loss, thinking that they might have blown their chance. And then they had a couple weeks later they lost to Oregon, and it was really they needed to have a strong showing in the Pac-12 tournament to really secure their chances. And of course they did. But yeah, yeah, it was sort of like the aftermath of the Cal game. All the rest of the games, the rest of the season, were super close, including those two losses to Oregon. And so it kind of very concerning from a, as a UW uh, writer, especially going into the tournament, because it's like, oh, are they even going to get past the first round? Uh, especially the way that they, the, the, the sort of the poor, the poorer showing they had at the end of the Pac-12 season. Um, but it ended up working out in terms of getting to the second round. And I remember one of those, I think it might have even been, uh, was USC the very first game that Washington played in the Pac-12 tournament? Yeah, that was where Matisse had the windmill dunk late to clinch it, but yeah. And I remember that game being incredibly close. I I can't remember the play-by-play off the top, but I remember, I actually remember I was, I was in a Starbucks. I was, I was actually working on, you know, just random homework and I had the game playing in the background. I'm just keeping track of the score and I'm seeing, and I'm thinking, you know, USC had underperformed all season and then I see that's a close game and I'm thinking, Yo, what if Washington is just like a like one and done in the Pac-12 tournament? Not even the NCAA, the Pac-12 tournament. But I guess it all ended up working out in terms of, you know, the the overall goal in terms of making it to the NCAA tournament. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we both thought though that if they did lose that USC game, I don't think they would have made it into the uh, into the NCAA tournament. Yeah, they, it kind of felt like they were on the bubble, even though they were the regular season champs. Because we actually did end up winning the Pac-12 regular season title, even though we lost to Cal. Because I think Oregon State and Arizona State yeah, both lost. Yeah, same night, yeah. Yeah, but it's just a very like morbid way to win the Pac-12 regular season title. So it was kind of a, a weird feeling going into to the postseason, for sure. I think it was kind of weird considering, you know, there was all this talk heading into, heading into the conference tournament. Is this going to be a one-bid league? Is it just going to be Washington or... Is that just is that just going to be it? And then we end up with three teams in the NCAA tournament, seemingly out of nowhere, with that Oregon win. So, I guess that's just I I think that's I think that perfectly summarizes just like the madness that endured throughout the the season. But you know, even taking taking away that Cal win, you know, we've been talking about um, you know the Pac-12 tournament as well as the NCAA tournament. One of the questions that I have as well was, would you consider? this past season the best in program history not even one of just simply the best because you, you factor in the team accomplishments 27 and 9 15 3 in conference play the 12 game winning streak and then you go into the individual achievements hopkins uh Thibel with this uh pac-12 defensive player of the year and national defensive player of the year noel winning pac-12 player of the year so i'm curious is that is this season being held in that high of esteem or you know, the fact that they were done in the second round, does that kind of hold it down a little bit? I don't think it's really held down just because we're just on such an uptrend right now with Coach Hop sort of implementing his defensive ways from Syracuse and uh, just sort of the, the the general feeling around Montlake is that this program is going to be great for years to come because we just have great leadership in, in Coach Hop. And even though so many seniors that were so instrumental to the success of the team are leaving – um, he's really opened up the pipeline in terms of both Seattle and New York to recruit some of the best players in the country. And then speaking of, yeah, I would you know, say, oh, go ahead. you're good. Not go ahead. I would say it's definitely one of the better seasons they've had with that early exit. Stings a little bit where you compare it to more like the Will Conroy, Brandon Roy teams of the early 2000s. I think that team's probably held in higher esteem, but this one was definitely, per the expectations it had, was uh, overachiever. And that was definitely some of the the vibe that I was getting uh, with this Washington team heading into the season. And just from like a, just like personally as a, you know, as a fan of college basketball, this was, they were exactly what I envisioned in terms of one of my favorite teams to just watch because, you know, we're in this era of, you know, one and done or, you know, two and done, just getting out as quickly as possible. And what you had in this Washington team was, that you weren't even just bringing back, you know, a couple key players. You were bringing back the in, like the entire roster, with the with the exception of a couple players at the end of the bench. And you know, it, it's probably going to be a lot difficult to replicate that, just because of the way that things are set up and the way, and especially with, you know, we've seen with the this the pure amount of players who transfer at the end of every season. You know, Cal has a couple players that are either transferred already or knocking on the door, but the way that I see it is I think that, you know, this is just strictly the outsider perspective, but I think this is going to be one of the seasons that really lives down uh, in the history of that program just because of, you know, both the individual achievements, the team achievements, and the fact that you were able to have this very experienced core amidst this madness of, you know, the one and done and the hot transfer market. Yeah, I think that sort of the toughest hurdle was that was just 
Coach Hop sort of retaining them in the first place? Because I know uh, Dejon Davis uh, transferred right after Romer was fired and Hopkins was hired. And so it was sort of up to him to convince guys like Noah and Matisse that his program is going to propel the program forward. And so I think when sort of they got on board, um, it was easy to keep everyone together. Uh, and yeah. Yeah, they did retain their top eight scores, I believe, from the previous season. And that experience, you could really feel it in tight games down the stretch, especially that USC game that we talked about to really propel them over the finish line. I actually did not know about the Dejon Davis decommitting thing. That's because I knew he from Seattle. Yeah, he when Romar was here, he was on board, and then I think the next day, him, Michael Porter. I don't think Jonte was on that class yet, but they all left, and yeah. Yeah, which was interesting because uh, Dejon and Jalen played together at Garfield, so that was going to be sort of a big, like, sort of dynamic duo. But you know, sort of, he had other plans once Romar left. Just imagining what now I'm just trying to imagine what could have been if you had Dejon Davis like part of this this past season's Washington team, like what that could have been like. Oh yeah, it would have been nice backing up uh David Crisp there, Jalen at the two a lot. It would have been quite the backcourt. I think we could play that what if game a lot too with with oh, a lot yeah. of other teams. I know that, you know, with the Cal team that's won only sixteen games over the past two seasons, it's really easy to play that what if game in terms of the commits specifically. Uh, with Jordan Brown but Mm -hmm. I would say you know you do have a a lot of this team that's leaving from uh, last season uh, to this next upcoming season you know Crisp, Thibel, Dickerson, Dom Green all graduated and you're losing not just a lot of talent but from the sort of the way that I see it a lot of the identity of that team because now you're going to go from this super experienced team to you know a team that's kind of up in in flux in terms of who they are in, in terms of that experience gap. And then you also have Noel declaring for the draft. I kind of have the feeling that he's going to come back. Do you guys sort of have that similar feeling as well, or is it you know, something that's kind of up in the air? I would say it's up in the air. I started right after he declared like positive he was going to come back, and now I'm starting <clears throat> with, the, uh, with the invite to the draft combine. It makes me think that he might stay in the draft and go with a late second rounder. Yeah, I was thinking, because Dickerson did sort of did the same thing last year. He was just sort of shopping for an agent and seeing if, uh, just sort of his draft status. And so it's kind of this, the same situation. Um, personally, I'm sort of leaning on the fact that he's going to come back, especially with sort of the, the crop that's coming in uh, this, this next year with Isaiah Stewart, potentially Jaden McDaniels, who goes to Federal Way High School, and he's one of the top, what was his rank? Top five? Yeah. Um, and so it's certainly the prospects are, are pretty good either way, I think, for Jalen. So it's sort of up in the air, but I'm, I'm leaning towards he's coming back. Yeah, especially when in because I know in baseball we've never had a, a, a like a repeat winner of the Golden Spikes Award. And the reason I mention that is because typically what you'll see is when someone gets, you know, that Pac-12 or like whatever the conference award is, you know, typically that's their that's their signing off. And you'll very seldom get someone like a Grant Williams who will like run it back immediately after winning player of the year. Uh, the way I kind of see it is, you know, I was, I, I could identify the talent in Noel uh, just from his freshman season. He didn't really make the, in, at least in my eyes, he didn't really make that super sizable year one to year two leap that I would have expected out of the top player of the best team in the conference. I'm not entirely, was that sort of, sort of the expectations that y'all had as well? 
Yeah, I agree with that. Watching his freshman year, you could tell that he was an advanced player. And then the jump from year two didn't really happen. I think he averaged 16 points year one, 16.1 or something last year. So, yeah, that jump didn't happen, but he still won the award probably because he was on the best team, but yeah. Yeah, that was something that surprised me a ton, too. I thought Matisse was going to win Pac-12 Player of the Year because he just had such a fantastic season. And his anticipation skills are just so next level. Uh, he improved his scoring. He just sort of improved his offensive numbers all the way around, so I thought he was going to be a shoe in personally. But I think just because Jalen's just been such a consistent performer, they decided to give him the award. But I think personally, Matisse was more kind of more deserving of it. I was actually kind of shocked when they decided to give it to Noel and not Matisse, because I was, yeah. you know, I, I was kind of going through the past award winners, and I was I wasn't able to find someone who had won the award without averaging at least ten points a game. I I'm pretty sure that played a large part in it, the fact that he was averaging nine, but. On the flip side of that, he's averaging three steals a game and two blocks a game. The last per- the last time that was done was the 0-2-0-3 season. And even if you just bring that back down to like two steals and two blocks, I think, you know, that's very the, the times you're going to see that in a Power 5 conference is few and far between. So I was, yeah, when when they decided to give it Noel, I understood why, just because, you know, the best player on the best team. But I was definitely siding with Matisse on that and I was reading a lot too and I was kind of got the impression that he was actually going to win the award just based on what I was reading yeah same here I texted Chris actually to write something up before they announced it like hey write up for when Matisse wins player of the year in the Pac-12 and then all of a sudden Jalen won it so yeah we were both clearly thinking Matisse was going to take it for sure yeah I was quite confident about it too and then I'm just watching the coverage. I was like, oh, Jalen. Okay, that's that's super strange. But it, it's interesting when you read off the averages, uh, his defensive averages. It feels like when you watch him in person game after game, he has so many more steals and blocks than that. It just feels like he's, like I said before, he has sort of like this next level anticipation. And the one thing that sort of stands out is that he looks like he never gambles. It looks like it's always a calculated risk, and he's always going to get the steal. He never gets beat. So he's, he sort of he has that sort of innate timing in him that I think is going to serve him well at the next level if a team is going to give him a chance. Yeah, I know that that was just um, some of the reading that I've done on Matisse. I know that one of the biggest knocks on him as a prospect was the fact that he was in that two three defense a lot as opposed to playing a lot of man. And while there kind of has been a little bit of a zone resurgence in the NBA, you know, it's typically man to man defense, and it brings up this question of how is he going to transition to the next level. But, you know, I think when you've got a guy like Matisse, you don't just like you don't just fall into three steals a game and two blocks a game without having some incredibly advanced, incredibly elite defensive instincts. And for sure, having a seven foot wingspan doesn't help for sure. Having the athleticism that he have doesn't help. You know, I think I do have some I do have some question marks about his offensive game going forward. But, you know, if he can really morph into the player that he can be, you're looking at someone that can be one of the elite 3 and D players at the next level. Yeah, absolutely. The biggest key question is definitely his offense. But defense, despite the zone, I th- I would be shocked if it doesn't translate. Like, I don't know how what his ceiling is, but his floor is high enough just because of that defense that will translate to some extent. Yeah, I think just the biggest problem is can he get some a little bit more offensive game? He's just not as polished on that end. Uh, I know he was sort of a sort of transitioning more into a 3 and D player, especially toward the, towards the end of the season. I think that's kind of what he visualized himself as. 
but I think sort of in the tournament. I mean, he did have he did have the windmill dunk, but off, sort of offensively, just from a general standpoint, he doesn't have as many tools as definitely Jalen has, and I think that's something he really needs to improve on. He's got the defense. He's always going to have the defense. It's always going to be handled. Always has the wingspan. It's just he needs to work on that shot a bit more. And I would say the one thing that kind of gives me confidence about uh, Matisse going forward is uh, the free throw shooting numbers. And I know that uh, a lot of NBA scouts, they'll look at, you know, three-point shooting numbers, as, or not three-point, they'll look at free throw numbers as opposed to your actual three-point numbers because that gives you a better uh, indication of how you'll transition from one level to the next. And this past season, he shot 85% from the line, while, and he did shoot you know, 31% from three. So there is a little, you know, there's a little bit of concern just because you don't see those numbers immediately. It's like, oh, 31% from three, that's far below average of what we're used to seeing in college, let alone at the next level when that line is going to be a couple of feet beyond. But, you know, I feel like just considering the amount of work that he's put in from, you know, stepping on campus day one, you know, I think that's one of the things as well is, you know, when you just see how he's sort of metamorphosed into, you know, the way that he's transitioned over these past four years and you know when you have that ability to dedicate you know your entire life to the game of basketball as opposed to being a student athlete side note pay the players always about paying the players uh absolutely you know i think we'll see we'll get to see like a better sense of who he can be and i remember in particular you know marcus lee you know i remember the first time that i saw g league's highlights of him he looked a lot uh, sleeker, he looked a lot more mobile, a lot more athletic as opposed to his time at Cal, just because he had had that opportunity to fully dedicate his life to the game of basketball, as opposed to, you know, having to juggle classes, having to go from here to there, everywhere, and not just being able to focus on being your top physical self. Yeah, absolutely. And at Washington, he didn't really ever have to be the offensive guy either, because his junior year, Noah Dickerson was one of the best big men in the country, so Noah would go to work down there, and then he's had Jalen to kind of handle the ball a lot during the last two years as well. So transitioning a little back into, you know, what this team looks like next year, uh, you mentioned Noah and sort of the the buzz that I'd gotten on uh, Isaiah Stewart was he was kind of like the second coming of Noah. Is that sort of the the vibe that y'all were getting from him or sort of the word that you'd hear it around him? Yeah, I mean, he's certainly a big boy. He sort of has this sort of a similar build to Noah. And obviously he was so much, you know, the recruiting trail he was recruited with so much like high praise and just seeing him on campus he just he's gigantic around the same size no a little bit he looks a little bit tall i think he's listed as six eight i think um which is the same size as noah but he definitely looks a little bigger yeah he's definitely a 2.0 version of noah i think he has a little bit more of a shot and he should be a little bit more advanced down low his first year. And I think it's rebounding as well. It's going to be a big difference over Noah. And then just looking at what this team, you know, potentially could be next season, you have Noel, you know, he is up in the air, but, you know, for the sake of the conversation, let's just say he returns next year, you throw in Stewart, you know, you have Quade Green transferring, who's, although he's not going to be eligible until conference play, he's going to be a big pickup. You got Nas Carter, Baby Hove, you got potentially uh, Jaden McDaniels as well. And, you know, when you, accumulate that much talent especially in you know a pack 12 that is losing a lot of talent you know you got almost every single team losing one of their core players if not more would y'all say that you could still see washington as 
the favorites to win the Pac-12? I think it really relies on Jaden McDaniels. I think Jalen either way, but I think if Jaden McDaniels comes here, absolutely. I think him and Isaiah will be probably the two best freshmen in the country, or at least in the Pac-12 at least. But yeah, I think it really depends on if he ends up coming here, ends up going to Kentucky. Yeah, but also too, it's sort of contingent on sort of those supporting players continuing to improve. I know that Nas Carter made a huge leap um, from freshman to sophomore year. Freshman year, he was very out of control on the offensive end. You could tell he was going for the highlight play. But sophomore year, he still got his highlight plays while still being more under control, being more cerebral about his offensive game. And his defense did get a little bit better as well. And then when I think of uh, Nas, you know, I'm not just thinking of, you know, I w- every time I mention him, I just got to throw out like the baby hove thing just because he is. Oh, yeah, j- everyone does. I everyone always got to throw it like out. Hearing it. The first time I feel like I f- the first time I heard that, it's like you hear the last name Carter, you're like, you know, common last name. And then I was just like doing some research on him like, wait, wait, for real? And it would explain why he's got like a bunch of pictures with a bunch of artists. So there's that. But I was watching the the Washington Oregon State game live when I think he put Kyler Kelly on a poster. Yeah, that was sure. one of the most disgusting things that I've ever seen happen on a college basketball court. Because Kyler Kelly is a he's a problem on the defensive end. He's a big guy. Yeah. Yeah, but I think one of sort of going back to the oops and the dunks and things like that. I think one of the biggest things in his personal growth was I think he threw an oop to Thibel, uh late in the season. I think he had caught an oop earlier in the game from Crisp, but seeing seeing Nas throw an oop was something that I did not expect, and I think it's something that's sort of symbolic of his overall growth. Yeah, and that, you know, we have we talk about a lot here, you know, about, you know, Cal's uh, year-to-year growth or lack thereof because, you know, when when I was looking at the core of, you know, suing McNeil and Juwan Harris-Dyson, you know, I'm thinking this is a core that if they progress properly, you know, now you, you you have a team that's winning at least more than eight games, but that was one of the more frustrating things about watching this Cal team was you knew the talent was there, but you had a bunch of players who just didn't make that year-to-year leap, and I feel like this is, you know, I contrasted at the very beginning, we're talking about the records heading into that upset game, the 22-5 and and the 5-22, and but I also feel like there's a contrast in the way that these teams have, you know, developed. Because if you look at the, you know, Hopkins' first year and his second year, it's the entire, it's the same team. But what you have there is, you know, even though you have the same team, you don't really have this, you know, crop of fresh talent, you have growth. And that's one of the things that leads me to believe that Washington is going to be the team to be in the Pac-12 until someone else can usurp them from that mantle. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think with Nas and Hamir, especially, it could be two guys that really take that next leap. And then you have the new guys coming in that infuse that talent with the guys leaving, like Matisse and Noah. Yeah, but like like you said, it kind of all goes back to coaching, um, especially with David Crisp. I know Coach Hop was putting... You know, he made it very clear to the press that he was putting a lot of faith in David Cripps to be his point guard, to be his leader. Uh, even though he wasn't the most, I would say, polished with his actual game, with his offensive game, um, he was certainly a leader on defense. He was certainly a leader in the locker room, um, and it was something that he sort once he got respect from everybody, and once Coach Hop sort of put that trust in him, you could tell the rest of it was going to come together. And I would say, like Chris, kind of responded to that because I remember there was a point in. I think it was conference play when he was shooting something ridiculous from three. Like every time he was 
every time he had an attempt, I'm thinking that's going in. Yeah, he went home. He was saying he went home for a break, and his mom just told him, like, hey, relax. You've been playing this game since you were a kid. And then after that, he went on that ridiculous hot streak that you mentioned, and he was probably the second best, maybe best offensive player there for the team for a little bit. For sure. I mean, another thing that super surprised me, because over the past year and a half before that, he was not a good three-point shooter. He would just sort of just huck them up, and I would just be like, what are you doing? But then all of a sudden, you could tell he improved a ton. His shot a ton over the past, you know, few months and things like that and so him hitting everything was a really cool thing to see and something that kind of gets lost with you know the whole you know upset is in that game David Crisps he had 32 points he matched his career high and you know Cal has as someone that's covered the team I've witnessed a lot of you know explosive performances you know Robert Franks and Benny Boatwright have both hit 10 three-pointers in a game against Cal and you know, that that definitely ranked up there with them just because it, with Robert Franks and Benny Boatwright, you got these, like, you know, 6'9", 6'10", dudes just knocking down threes. But then in the case of David Crisp, this is just, you have this dude, you know, really just attacking the Cal defense and having absolute no regard for the defense whatsoever. It's He's, you know, just burying threes in the face of defenders. Not It was, it was kind of an unconscious effort. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I I know that uh, sort of the first. I think the first. I think they hit UW hit six of their first nine threes, and Chris sort of spearheaded the charge on that. And it was something that another thing that just incredibly surprised me about just their overall sort of offensive outburst and having Chris be sort of the the ringleader for that was something that I did not expect. Um, it was it was really cool to see that he got the career high thirty two points. Um, and also Jalen Noah I think scored got to a thousand career points in that game so sort of an offensive milestone game in a lot of different ways but still not coming up with a win it was obviously that was the most important thing for them and then you gotta you gotta just like forget about the if we're gonna talk about offensive milestones like yeah there, there was a game that happened we were just racking up these milestones in that game <laughs> but yeah. yeah it was tough so even though you know i think the, the the popular perception is you know washington as the team to beat in the pac-12 you know, I'm just a little curious as to what type of concerns you may have in terms of their ability to repeat as the top team in the Pac-12. Obviously, the Noel, you know, his status being up in the air, I can imagine that being one of them. But even if you take Noel out of that equation, what are some of the things that y'all are looking at that might be an impediment to repeating as the best team in the Pac-12? Well, I think it's probably just how that new influx of talent comes in, because obviously Coach Hop has had a very experienced group, as we've already talked about um, over the past two years, and sort of convincing those people to get to sort of buy into that system after after going through two years of losing. I think that was a little bit easier for them to sort of digest, but now he's sort of opened the door for more one-and-done players, and you're definitely not going to see something like four seniors in the starting lineup as you did this past year. So it's just having those sort of like top you know sort of potential lottery picks sort of buy into the system at least if it's only for one year because the two three zone has a lot of different especially the Syracuse two three zone has a lot of different intricacies and it took them you know sort of it took the the seniors from this past year like really a year to like get familiar with it and really work uh, work together in tandem and so having that sort of sort of connection between the five on the court that's going to be something difficult especially for new players coming in 
I think the other concern is probably down low outside of Isaiah Stewart. They have a lot of question marks. You got Brian Penn Johnson and Nate Roberts, two freshmen who uh, redshirted this past year. What will their contributions be and how will they be able to uh, pick up that slack from Noah? Would you say that there's sort of a, there's a fear that an identity shift can really be an impediment to this team because you know you're going from a team that's super experienced that a team that's been together all four years to as you mentioned potentially like this one and done type factory so do you you sort of have that concern that sort of the heart and soul and like really what makes Washington Washington is going to undergo a transformation yeah I mean it's sort of concerning because this this group was built on defense and being just extremely connected. But if you're getting more of these players that are more offensively capable and sort of are more individualized and have sort of their own minds about how they want their experience to go, it'll be interesting to see if, again, if uh, Hopkins and the coaching staff can sort of link them up together and what the veterans now with Nas and then there's also Hamir Wright, who are both going into their junior years. Um, see how they can sort of teach the defense because Hamir Wright was a pretty key part of the defense. He would play the five always inside to start the game. He started 26 games this past year, only after starting uh, one in his freshman year. And so he was sort of a key cog in the defense and I think he's someone that is a very willing teacher, I think, for those uh, for those new guys. Um, not much of a scorer, but he's definitely a key cog in there and he's going to be very, very important uh, for new people coming in, learning that 2-3. Yeah, I think another player who will be, it'll be interesting to see his development is Jamal Bay. Matisse really took him under his wing this past year, and Jamal's going to be a sophomore now, and they're going to have to rely on him more to fill that Matisse-type role, especially if Jaden McDaniels doesn't end up coming here. Jamal will probably be Matisse's replacement if you can replace a two-time reigning Pac-12 defensive player of the year. Yeah, my- and that's a comparison that Hopkins was making a lot in press conferences. Uh, he's like, I want Jamal to play. He reminds me of Matisse. Matisse is leaving. Jamal's still going to be here. I want him to be the next guy. And he was sort of coming on late in the year. And I know sort of in garbage time of a couple games, he was hitting tons of shots. But I know that's uh, Hopkins is definitely expecting him to improve a lot going into this next year because he's going to rely on him a lot more. Yeah, I knew that playing time for Jamal was going to be very hard to come by just considering the rotation for this team heading into the season had almost, you know, f- to an extent, it kind of been set in stone already. Like you knew who the core guys were going to be. And, you know, heading into his first year, I believe he was like the Gatorade, you know, player of the year. Yeah, yeah and, you know, in Nevada, yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, brother of Tyler Bay as well. So, like, the basketball pedigree is there. And it kind of sucked just as a, you know, casual, uh, as like an outsider not being able to see Jamal being able to get his fair share of playing time, you know, although it was expected. But I, I can't remember which game it was. But I just remember... I remember just seeing him out on the floor and sort of the energy that he was bringing in the few in the few minutes that he was out there, and it's one of those things that's not really going to show up in a box sheet. It's it's more you just watching someone and watching the way they move and the way they go about the game, and that was sort of the impression that I got from Jamal is that he can, whether or not he becomes that Matisse Thibel type player, I'm not sure, but it definitely I got the sense of just watching him in the little opportunities that I did that you know, he can, uh, that he's more than capable of, you know, making a transition into that type of role. Yeah, he definitely improved a lot over the over the course of the year. I felt sort of in the first half of the season when he, whenever he came off the bench, he was sort of looked like a fish out of water, kind of didn't know where he was going, especially in the defense. Um, 
but as he sort of came on and sort of learned the concepts and definitely when Matisse was taking him under his wing and showing him they basically played the same position um, when he went in the game and so sort of cu- coupled with his defensive improvement obviously sort of a similar build and wingspan uh, and if he can get going from three as he did late in the year I don't see why he could at least be a little bit of a Matisse light. I mean, there is no replacement for Matisse, but he could certainly get kind of close. I got you. Yeah, another guy I was surprised who didn't get as much playing time was uh, Elijah Hardy, and he will probably, depending on what Jalen does, he might be pushed into action here before Quade is eligible as point guard. Yeah, he was very exciting to watch in the in the garbage time that we, we saw from him. I think he played in like five or six games, and he would always just make a move on the guy. He would hit a step back three. Everyone would go crazy, and then the game would be over. Um, but we'll see how much playing time he gets. I'm not. We're not. I'm not quite sure. And I think Kyle would agree with me on this: is that we don't know how much Hopkins really prefers him. It seemed kind of weird because he would barely play, but at the same time, he was very highly touted, and you can tell he's very dynamic with the basketball. So we'll see if he gets that starting point. I mean, I we would assume that he would get that starting point guard nod if definitely if if Jaden doesn't come come around and rotation doesn't shift but he's interesting to watch and we'll see how much playing time he gets yeah would you mind going a little into Hardy a little bit because you know I, I'm just looking at the stats right now 11 games barely like a handful of minutes I'm curious as to like what y'all have uh, seen out of him even in that little bit of garbage time that you know has like that allows you to put him in that type of high regard for me personally, I actually made it out to Jamal Crawford's Pro-Am a couple times this year, and he was really impressive in that. He was on Jamal Bay's team, and it was night and day. Elijah was knocking down everything, talking trash to all the NBA pros. His attitude was just on a different level, and I feel like, especially with Chris believing, he's going to have to be that guy, probably, depending on Jalen and what happened with the recruits. But I think he has that leadership, and he definitely has the offensive game and the little bit that I've seen both in games and in practice and at the program. Yeah, you talk about, like, sort of activity, too. He's uh, he's really into it on the bench. Him and Nate Roberts were always getting into it. They're always the first guys to stand up, and they always do, like, these weird dances together. Um, and they're they're always on the promo reels on the Jumbotron. Um, so you can tell they're super connected. But going back to just Elijah, he's got some dynamic ball skills. Uh, he he can certainly break some ankles. Um, the first thing he does, and he doesn't. He's a quick starter too. He can definitely heat up extremely fast, even from like the very little we saw of him. You could tell he was ready to come in, and I think that's sort of the biggest thing, at least from a bench player, is that you got to always be ready. Yeah, like with Jamal Bay and even Matisse on offense, they didn't always look completely comfortable. Where Elijah does not have that issue at all. His confidence is there already as a freshman who barely played. And I think it'll only take a leap with off-season work this year going into next year. And I will say, I, y'all know the answer to this question. I'm just going to ask it anyway. Where's Elijah Hardy from? I just want you to say it on, on, on the mic real quick. Where's he from? He's from Oakland, California. Oakland, California, yay area. So when you're talking about that fearlessness, you know, I know where that fearlessness comes from. And, you know, especially, uh, Kyle, I see you, t- you know, tween a little bit about Damian Lillard. You know, that little mentality that he got. That's yeah, Oakland right, right there. Oakland. <laughs> that is Oakland. <laughs> That's Oakland. But I, I say just to, you know, a good place to end right here is, you know, for for y'all, uh, what would sort of constitute a successful season going forward? What would constitute an unsuccessful season? And, you know, what are your just overall thoughts on this team both 
this potential identity shift. So both next season and then going into the future. Well, I think this season, like I've said, is dependent on what happens with Jalen and Jaden McDaniels. I think if both of them are playing next season, anything less than a sweet 16 berth would probably be a disappointment. And even that's pushing it because you have two of the top five recruits in the country coming in. And then long term, I think it's more you have a plethora. uh, You have a hotbed right here in Seattle. And if Hop can recruit like he has been in New York, I think that it could really build the identity of this team, an offensive minded shift, like you said, but an offensive minded team going forward. Yeah. I mean, with the way that Washington surprised everybody going back to last year, uh, those expectations were extremely low going into Hopkins first year. And the way he turned it around was was obviously crazy. And as he keeps building, gets getting to the second round of the NCAA tournament, those expectations are only going to get higher. And so he's going to need to figure out a way to get, again, the, the sort of one-and-done talent guys recruiting both from Seattle and the New York, New York area because that's where he got, obviously, Nas Carter and Hermione Wright. They both played on the same AU team, as well as Isaiah Stewart. Um, and sort of bringing the, the best of both worlds, sort of those two pipelines together to build a cohesive team. And it's obviously something that he's sort of proven that he can do. So if he can continue to do that with guys that are obviously less experienced across the board, he's not going to have four seniors again. Um, I don't see any reason why this program can't succeed both in the short and the long term. Because the thing that you see with, you know, this sort of AAUification of, you know, college basketball and, you know, how Hopkins is kind of dipping into this potential one-and-done territory is is that once you start playing the one and done game you can't really stop you kind of just have to continuously churn out these big time prospects or you're going to be left with an incredible talent gap from year to year and i would say that's one of my you know i've I've, we've been talking about this throughout the duration of this podcast that whole thing of identity shift and you know as much as i want washington to remain as that that one team that really you know, really embodies the spirit of college basketball and has that always has the seniors, always has the very experienced players. I feel like we're not going to be seeing that as much. And that's not, you know, not necessarily a bad thing, but it definitely is going to be a change of pace from, you know, what we saw in these first two seasons under Hopkins to what we might potentially see going forward. Yeah, I would probably agree with that, especially when looking at some of the top talent in Seattle. You have Jaden this year, but the next year even, you have Marjan Bochamp. Following that, you have Paulo Granchero. Both of them are probably one-and-done type guys, and I don't see how he's going to build the senior, any many like elite players to stay four years like he has this past cycle. Yeah, I mean, that task is virtually impossible, especially in today's college basketball climate. He's basically going to have to become another like John Calipari type of guy that can easily, can sort of, make these one-and-done guys gel together for one year. These super supremely talented guys sort of convince them to buy into the team mentality as he did with the four seniors these past couple years, but sort of sort of accelerate that timeline and make sure that everyone's on the same page right from the jump. Yeah, and we'll see how it shifts to once the NBA gets away with the one-and-done rule because I'm sure it'll be a pretty dramatic shift at that point, but as under the current rules, I don't see how Washington could build something like that. Kyle, Chris, I appreciate y'all, ta- y'all taking the time out. Appreciate it, Justice. Yeah. Thank you. Until, yeah, thank you so much. Until next time, this has been season number one, episode number 26 of the One Goal Amount podcast. Signing off. I think that went well. That went beautifully.
Yeah. That's always the one thing is like, it's kind of gotten to a point where with me and recording, like I just like, I have the headphones in, but I just turn it down super low just because it's like weird hearing myself all the time. But yeah, if, yeah. 